Hi everyone. I thought I'd tune in for a sporadic podcast recording, which is really more of a chat these days, to be honest with you, and talk about medical gaslighting. My reasoning is because it is 20 to 2 in the morning, I am uncomfortable, I cannot sleep, and I thought, hey, I might as well tune in and say hi to you lovely people. Also because I know that so many of you from the discussions we've had online experience really similar issues. And there are a lot of reasons a lot of us can't sleep, you know, um, from insomnia and stress, anxiety, so many things. But this in particular is going to be more about, well, actually, no, it still ties into it. But this is more about, at the moment, illness and chronic illness. Now, first of all, I just wanted to say there does seem to be a link with chronic illness and particular illnesses like the one I have, dysautonomia, and um, so many people being diagnosed with fibromyalgia, for example, and autism. Now, I've read lots of studies, I've spoken to a lot of autistic people, and there seems to be a distinct pattern. But I'm not a medical professional, I'm not a professional researcher. And I don't have enough evidence to completely back up that claim. But it is something I'm so interested in and would love to know more about. And if anybody else does have access to that kind of knowledge or research, please feel free to forward. Um, because, I, you know, if I can get the time, I'd love to read it. And I say if I can get the time because life at the moment is chaotic, but that's not what we're talking about at the moment. So I will try and go back on track, which you will know if you are a follower of this podcast, I can find quite difficult to do. But at the moment, I feel like I'm going through another episode of medical gaslighting. So for context, I had a very poor immune system growing up. And as a child, I had a lot of nasal infections and um, and a lot of bladder infections. I was at the doctor's surgery or the hospital an awful lot in my early life. And I remember those vividly. And I remember them teasing me and saying I should have a bed at the surgery and that kind of thing, which used to actually annoy me, if I'm honest, even from a young age, because it was just the last place I wanted to be. And sometimes people would imply that you were there needlessly and that your mum was just being fussy but you know I know that in some cases there have been cases where parents are maybe making more out of things than there is and that kind of thing but generally speaking I just don't I don't think everybody should be treated that way and it definitely shouldn't be the first thing that medical professionals go to I have had experiences as a child where I've been so poorly. I remember having this really sore throat once and I couldn't swallow and I couldn't eat. And my mum took me to the doctor and he looked inside my throat and all the rest of it. And he said, and he actually laughed and said, it's hardly raging tonsillitis. And um, there was no, you know, I think, I can't remember what the treatment was, probably some kind of antibiotics or something. Um, But he made me feel like a fool. So I just want for context to explain that I I think a lot of my anxieties with visiting doctors, they go way back and they go way back to interactions with medical professionals that were not very pleasant. And I think so many of us can probably relate to that. So I spent a lot of time, like I said, going to the doctors and hospitals and it was just not fun. And having, you know, to be prodded and poked and have blood taken and injections and under anaesthetic and I had a couple of operations when I was quite young. Um, When I was a baby and a toddler, my mum said that I used to not eat properly. Now, we now realise that was sensory issues. We didn't know about autism at the time. That really was not something that was very um, known about and definitely was not on the radar of my family. But 
my mum was really concerned because I would store food in my mouth and my cheeks would get bigger and bigger and then it would all just come back out again. And um, before that, I wouldn't eat at all. And so when this started to happen where I was actually letting her put the food in my mouth, she was excited. And then obviously it would all come back out again. And so she had to call the health visitor and she had to get lots of help because I wasn't eating. And it got to the point where my teeth actually crumbled. I was malnourished. And, um, you know, mum felt like an absolute failure. But it obviously later transpired that I was just struggling with certain textures of food. And that happened till really late in life, actually. So every week, I think I was three years old at this point, I had to go to the baby clinic to be weighed with all the babies because I was so underweight. And it was a really stressful time for my poor mum. And I feel so bad about everything she's been through, especially in a time where nobody understood it and there was no support for her. So she kind of had to just go with instinct all of the time. And I really am grateful to have had a mum who, you know, did so brilliantly by me, if that's the right word, without having the, you know, Google and communities to speak with she didn't know anybody who was going through these experiences and so many times she got criticized um for things that she did and you know for example cooking different meals for me uh to other members of the family and they would say oh you know if she's hungry she'll eat and they had no idea again this isn't completely topical but I think the frustration with us as autistic people especially when you don't know you are is you experience life differently. And for example, for me, there are a lot of things I experienced that I was probably more sensitive to because of being more sensory sensitive. And not knowing I was autistic, that wasn't something that anybody was aware of and I could articulate. So the raging tonsillitis comment, for example, maybe, maybe it wasn't raging tonsillitis, but I was in legitimate pain and maybe I was unable to tolerate or process that pain because of my differences. We don't actually know, do we? But that's my theory. And I think so many of us went through that. There was another time, I think, when, again, I was only very young and they had to do um, a blood test or... So I just remember them having to put a needle in me, basically. And they struggled and they had to be held down and they tried 14 times. And, you know, again, I'm an autistic person, very sensory... And that was, I, I still recall this, and it was absolutely horrendous and uh, quite a traumatic experience. So again, not great associations with medical professionals and hospitals and, and doctor's surgeries. But I do remember my stepdad at the time being out in the hallway um, while I was in the room with my mum and all these doctors and nurses or whoever they were. And a doctor apparently made a horrible comment about the screaming child and shut that child up or something. And my stepdad said, excuse me, that's my daughter. And then explained what I was having to go through as a very young child and they couldn't find a vein, which has uh, been the bane of my existence <laughs> even to this day. You know, um, I think 14 attempts that day. On average, it usually takes them about seven or eight times to find a vein. So, you know, I, again, I wonder if that's something that other people can relate to as well. But, um... Yeah, I think what I'm trying to get to the bottom of is I've had a really, really kind of traumatic time growing up with doctors and it is not something I take lightly. Going to make an appointment fills me with so much dread that I avoid going. And the experience of how you get treated when you actually do have the courage to make that appointment 
is indescribable and again I imagine so many of you will understand this but I don't think many people in the medical profession do and that is kind of why I'm recording this because I am hoping somebody will hear it. I do want to just put a precursor out there that I am aware that you know being a doctor or a GP, a GP in particular they have a really hard job. You have so many people coming to you daily you have to know so many different areas and you cannot physically be an expert in every single area. I can walk in with my very niche chronic illness and I'm not expecting them to know everything about it. But what you don't want is to go in with symptoms and be dismissed. And this has been my experience forever. So, um, you know, I've told you earlier about my teeth crumbling and I had to then have general anaesthetic and had to have all my teeth taken out. So I had my grown up teeth very, very early in life. And Again, you know, the bladder infections, the nasal infections and just having such a poor immune system that whenever there was illness going around, I used to always get it and I wouldn't just get it like mildly. I would always have it really badly. And I used to actually spend most of my childhood being told by a doctor that I had post-viral fatigue. So I had like no energy and then I'd start building it up and I would, you know, get ill again. But nothing ever stopped me from, you know, trying to kind of live my life. And even as an adult, when I still had a lot of these problems with my immune system, you know, it didn't stop me from working. Even if I felt rough, I so rarely took days off. Um, And again, I wonder if that's because I had been made to feel so bad about always being ill. And people always used to say, oh, gosh, always something wrong with you that I think I kind of learned to manage it. So when people say, oh, you've got a low pain threshold and that kind of thing, it's nonsense. I am sensory and how I cope and tolerate, you know, pain can be different day to day. But generally speaking, I think a lot of us who develop chronic illnesses or have poor immune systems, we actually end up tolerating an awful lot of pain. We have a high pain threshold in some way, really, because we're having to live with that all of the time. So if we get to a point where we're really not coping, it's probably more from the frequent, constant pain and fatigue that you're in and how that impacts your you know, physical well-being as well as your mental and emotional well-being. But um, like I said, I avoided going to the doctors as much as possible. And then at one point I came out with these growths on my foot. Um, I had about 14 of them. And my mum uh, was watching something, I think, like Embarrassing Bodies. And she saw a girl on there who had a similar condition. Hers was worse, to be fair. And they talked about it being the immune system and how it needed to be broken down and built back up again. So at this point, we asked, uh, my mum came with me. And again, doctors found this really strange because I was in my 20s, I believe, at this point. And they found it really, really odd that I took my mum to the doctors with me. But I just used to shut down. And I don't know why I'm saying used to because I'm still the same now at 38 years old. I used to shut down as soon as I went in there. I mean, I struggled to make appointments. My mum was still making appointments for me until my 20s. And it was only when one doctor kind of mocked me for having my mum do things for me and come with me to appointments that I then thought, right, okay, I need to be an adult. I need to do this for myself. Now that I know I'm autistic and that actually I've got some very legitimate processing issues, I feel less embarrassed to take people with me because I feel now I can explain. But actually, you shouldn't be made to feel like that anyway. And the reason my mum used to make the appointments for me is because I couldn't always explain my symptoms properly to the receptionist. And my current surgery has great receptionists. But up until this surgery, so the few I've had before, 
they have always been really unpleasant. I'm sorry to anybody in that line of work, but it's as though they are, you know, trying to stop you from seeing anybody. That's how it feels. And I guess you come across somebody like me who doesn't explain it very well. And of course, they are not letting you through the gate. They don't want you to come and see a doctor. And I didn't know I was autistic again. I think this is where a lot of the problems come in. I didn't know I was autistic. I couldn't understand why I couldn't communicate properly. I couldn't understand why they weren't understanding what I was saying. But then you have the issue of the communication issue, the anxiety issue, and then the fact that you are medically gaslit. So to give a specific example, I went to the doctor about these things that happened on my foot. I hated them. I wound up having them on my skin for about seven years. They eventually went on their own. I was not given any support, but I did go to the doctor about them, told them about what my mum had seen on television. And of course, you know, they hate it if you do that, to be honest with you. If you go and you've researched something or you found something, instead of thinking, oh, okay, well, this human being has obviously been going through this, living with this, and they're relating to it, let's look into it. Um, You are treated as though you're a bit of a hypochondriac, quite frankly. And I find that really, really sad. But this doctor did take me seriously eventually and said, right, I'm going to refer you to an an immunologist, somebody who does like really extensive blood work to look into your immune system. They said, you know, based on your history and all of the illnesses you've had growing up, I mean, you know, I remember at one point I had to go and actually stare at my mum's. I was living with my husband at the time and I had to go and stare at my mum's for weeks because he couldn't look after me. And I was getting one infection after another. And I I remember my mum being really worried because it just made no sense. And it was literally, there were bad infections, like chest infections and eye infections. And at one point I was bedridden and I couldn't get out of bed. And as a child, I had glandular fever. And I will admit I was about nine years old then. And ever since the glandular fever, things really did, you know, um, escalate. My immune system was never the same again after that. And um, they say you can never have glandular fever again. I've, I've heard that said so many times and I've read it online and I've had doctors tell me it. But I've also had other doctors tell me, diagnose me with glandular fever again as an adult, I think three times, four times in total. So a lot of conflicting. I think that's the other issue, isn't it? They, they're not all consistent in what they advise. And it's really frustrating. And we're in the Google age and we can research things now. And I think the problem is of a lot of doctors, you research something and they think you're just Googling it and thinking you have everything. But most of us, especially us neurodivergent people, we are so good at researching things. And, you know, again, I'm not trying to be generic here. I know it's not doesn't apply to everybody, but so many people I've spoken to can relate to this. And what I tend to do is go through the symptoms and I have like kind of two lists and I'll have one with no, absolutely not. And okay, no, this could be a contender. Um, but it's like they think you've Googled it, seen something, and you just apply everything to yourself aimlessly, which is just, you know, illogical. And I'm a person of logic, so, and so many of us are. So that's also frustrating. But um, as it happens, they did uh, refer me to this immunologist, and then I was really excited because I thought, finally, you know, we might be getting to the bottom of this, maybe I'll get some help. So I believe, like I said, this would have been in my late teens, probably early 20s. When we got to the ward, it was not an immunologist that we were seeing. It was actually an oncologist, which scared me, if I'm truthful. And we went to see the oncologist. He felt my body. He said, I will admit your glands are all up um, in places I wouldn't expect them to be. 
like in my groin and that kind of thing. I was sent for an ultrasound um, and they found, and some blood work, and um, they found that, yes, my spleen was enlarged and that, you know, my bloods weren't perfect, but they were kind of borderline and that my iron was really, really low, so I had to have an iron infusion. But this doctor was so horrid to me. He was really angry that I had been referred to him. Now, I was really scared why they'd sent me to him, but my naivety at the time, I kind of thought, oh, he must be the immunologist. <laughs> um, I didn't really kind of clock the ward we were on to start with. It was only when my mum pointed out you know, where we were and, and what oncology was uh, that I kind of freaked out. And I felt like I shouldn't have been there. Um, but he actually said the reason that you've not been sent to an actual immunologist is there aren't many of them. And they also cost a lot of money. And there is no way that they're going to refer you to one. So instead, they've sent you to me to do a few tests. I can't do the same extensive blood work, but I can do some blood work. Um, but quite frankly, he said he was angry I'd been sent there and he took this anger out on me. So he was just really unpleasant and basically said I was wasting their time. And that if I wanted to see an immunologist, I would have to find the money to pay for it. And I think he said it would be like £35,000. And I left there crying. And when I had my iron infusion, they put me on a ward with cancer patients having their chemotherapy. And, you know, it might be wrong, but I feel like it was done to shut me up. It was done, I, f I feel, to shame me because he thought I was being a hypochondriac and he pretty much said that in the appointment. And my mum got really angry and said, you know, she's ill all the time. And I appreciate she hasn't got the illness that you're dealing with day in day out and I understand your impatience but it is not her fault or my fault that we've been referred to you when we were told we were seeing an immunologist so uh, but this person just didn't like it at all and then sent a really nasty letter to my doctor and when I saw my doctor they just actually turned the screen to me and let me read the whole letter and you know where basically just laughing at me um, for being a hypochondriac and then saying about my mum having so much to say. And he said that my mum said I was really ill and was really worried about me. And his response was, you know, I deal with cancer and I deal with double pneumonia. And I'm sorry, but this girl is not that ill. And I think it was a really hard moment for me because I'd literally spent my entire life up to this point, you know, always having a compromised immune system and not being able to kind of live the life that that I would have liked to because things were not normal for me like they were for a lot of other children. Um, and I just remember this being one of my really prominent moments of just keep it to yourself in future. If you feel ill, hide it where possible. But seriously, I even remember being on the school holidays once when I was an adult, so I was a teacher, and um, I got mumps, of all things, and it was horrendous. Like, I can't even describe to you. But I remember going back to school when I was better, and one of my friend's husband said, you know, you can't just have a cold, can you? It has to be mumps, you know. So there was this running joke that whenever I got ill, it would be so, so bad. I do feel, funnily enough, when I was at school, that I did in some way build up a bit of an, an immune system because I wasn't ill as much. I could, I'd get colds and things, but I wasn't um, seriously ill to the same degree. And I don't know if there's any truth in that. I've heard there might be, um, but definitely I didn't catch a lot of things. And actually I never got, I never once got nits 
from working in the school. So I kind of see that as quite a, a personal achievement, to be honest with you. But yeah, so where were we? We were talking about, um, you know, me getting to a stage where I thought, right, I just need to not tell anybody when I'm feeling ill and try and hide it from people. So what I would do is work through anything I was feeling and just try and put on a mask. So not only was I masking, you know, being autistic, even though at that point I didn't know I was, but I was also masking, you know, the pain I was in or the illness I had and I hid it from everybody. But because I was ill a lot, because I had immune issues, um, that meant I started isolating myself from people. So you've got the social element because of, you know, just having difficulties with communicating and that kind of thing and preferring to be at home, um, kind of making me very isolated. And then you've got the fact that I was ill and I was trying to hide it from people. And my husband can, you know, he's been with me. We've been friends since we were 13 and together since we were 17. And, you know, he's always known me as, as kind of having a poor immune system. So he can kind of vouch for this experience. Um, but again, I've never let it stop me. Like, you know, I never let it stop me becoming a teacher or going to work or anything like that. But it has always been there. And it's always been quite a prominent part of my life, feeling ill. I don't actually know what it's like not to feel ill. And... Sometimes I'm not going to lie, I envy healthy people. I just can't even imagine having a day where there's not some kind of problem or illness or pain and oh, I can only dream. I'd just be I'd just love to wake up and just feel whatever healthy is, whatever normal is, you know? But anyway, um yeah, so at this point I'm like, right you know, I need to start pretending, I need to put on a performance. My mum actually told me off once because I used to walk into the doctor's surgery and they'd go, you know, so how are you? And I'd say, fine. And she was like, why did you say fine? And she said, like, I'd be really cheery. Even if I was really poorly, you see, the mask would go on. And so I know, I know that didn't help things, but I can't help it. And also I think because I kind of always tried to be this really positive, bubbly person, um, I think to make up for the fact that I wasn't really very confident underneath it all, um, they used to think, you know, why are you wasting my time and that kind of thing. I appreciate I'm waffling as usual and I apologise, but I am going to continue. <laughs> so then um, I went a lot of years just trying to avoid bringing any attention to myself about my illness. And then I got pregnant with my eldest child. And through that, I um, had something called SPD, but not the sensory processing disorder, which I already have as part of being autistic. And at this point, I did know I was autistic, but I was only self-identified. Um, it's symphysis pubis dysfunction, I believe. And sometimes it's called PGP, so pelvic girdle pain. Um, and I could not walk. But obviously, we didn't know what this was. And it was horrendous. And as the day went on, it would get worse. And by night time, I would be, um, if I needed a wee at night, it was horrendous. I'd have to try and hold walls and, you know, pull myself along walls to try and get to the bathroom and back. It was just moving in bed was impossible and it was awful. And then I developed whooping cough just before I was due to have the vaccine for it. So um, that was awful. And we had a lot of scares in that pregnancy as well. So it was a really stressful time. I'd had an early miscarriage before um, and then during that pregnancy, nine weeks in, I had another bleed and we thought, you know, so it, it, there's been a lot of stuff that's gone on, but I was so poorly. And even during my pregnancy, when I try, you know, I tried to avoid going to the doctor, 
until it got to a point where I couldn't not go because I was just coughing all the time and I couldn't sleep and I was worried about the baby. And um, I experienced some medical gaslighting there where they were just making out, you know, yeah, you're pregnant. When you're pregnant, you can get ill. When you're pregnant, you will ache. And they were not really acknowledging the intensity of what I was going through until months passed. And I was, I think it took three months. Um, am I, is this, I'm not sure if that's correct. I'm sure it was. I think it took three months for my whooping cough symptoms to actually um, dissipate, if that's the right word. Um, and we'd been through, I think, three courses of antibiotics and then steroids. And it was only through the steroids, the treatment of steroids, that um, things started to improve. But the doctors didn't believe me until one day I was in there and I couldn't breathe. And then they took me seriously. But isn't it a shame you have to get to that point? I've got a baby inside me. And the coughing was so bad, I felt my head was going to explode. And I was so worried about any damage that might be done to the baby. You know, and again, not being able to walk, no one believed me until they saw it for themselves. And I think, you know, that sums up my whole experience is, you know, throughout my life, it's been, I just never have been believed for anything I've experienced. And, okay, it's not necessarily medical gaslighting because that's everybody. But, you know, when I've said, oh, this hurts or that hurts or I feel this, people don't believe you. And when you can't articulate it, which is sometimes the case being autistic because you're not always in tune with your body, um, and you can't necessarily, or you're very in tune with it, but you can't necessarily articulate it, and that seems to be a lot of my problem. Um, people don't take you seriously. So we had that issue. And then, um, you know, then they were very apologetic and very helpful, and then I um, had a premature rupture of membranes at 38 weeks with my eldest, and there was a lot of blood, and I thought I was losing him. And then we called the ambulance and, you know, called the doctor and everything, and nobody believed there was a lot of blood. I remember my husband being on the phone and they said, you know, it can look like there's a lot when waters break, but it was probably just a tiny bit. And then when they saw the amount of blood there was, they were alarmed. Then they took me into hospital and they tried to send me home saying, oh, again, it's probably nothing until all of a sudden they saw it for themselves and then said, no, we can't let you go home. But again, I think this is just another example of every single time throughout my life when I've said something is up or I'm feeling something nobody ever believes me and I've said to my husband a million times you know there's been so many occasions now and incidents where things have happened I've said look this is happening or I think I've got this people have completely dismissed me and then I've been proven right and nobody then thinks okay well no she was correct about that situation and the next one and the next one and the next one that they actually start listening it's like you have already got the label against you so people are continuing to treat you like that and I can't get my head around why and that bit really drives me mad so fast forwarding um we then I am then really poorly after having my son and I've got so many issues I can't even go into them but I was not believed and my doctor was very impatient with me and just kept saying you know when you've had a baby it can take up to 18 months to recover. So anything I experienced, he just put down to that. So I stopped going. But then the more the um, family nagged me, this isn't normal, what you're going through, I then ended up going back. And he eventually said to me, look, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just anxious. 
And I became very defensive about this word anxious over the years. It became a very dirty word because I felt that word was always used to dismiss anything I experienced. And he actually said to me on this last occasion, I said, look, my mum's just recently gone and had her B12 and vitamin D tested and it's come back really low. I said, and she's got very similar symptoms to me. Do you think you could test me for it? He said, right this is the last time I send you for any tests. And I, and I think the worst part is he's implying like I've done loads and I actually hadn't. Um, you know, I'd been on a few occasions because I'd genuinely been very poorly and I couldn't function. I couldn't even walk at one point. Um, you know, again, that's a very long story, but basically they made some mistakes through my labour that wound up creating other issues for me. So there's all these kind of things where they've had negligence but it's always your fault. You're the one who's, you know, describing it wrong or you're just faking it. And, you know, why would you? I had a small child and, and what would I have gained out of lying about these symptoms? I have no idea. I also suffered of postnatal depression and had absolutely zero support for that as well. Um, but yeah, he said, no, there's nothing wrong with you, but I'll do these tests. But, you know, you have to let me refer you to Steps to Wellbeing, um, which is, again, for... I think more like mental health and that kind of thing. So I agreed. And then when my test came back, he realised that, no, I actually did have very low vitamin D. He said it was the lowest um, that he'd ever seen. So I did have some very valid issues. My bloods were, again, all very borderline. I had to be on iron supplements. And they also realised I hadn't actually healed internally from having the baby because of, again, a treatment they'd put me on. I think it was some kind of pill afterwards. They'd put me on straight away. And um, it stopped any oestrogen from being in my body and apparently need the oestrogen to heal. So what happened is I think 10 months on or so, I still wasn't even healed from having the baby. So I was in an absolute state and nobody was taking me seriously. Then fast forward to having my second child <laughs> and that pregnancy was actually a lot easier, but I did have SPD again. And um, it goes as soon as you've had the baby, but I couldn't move. We have later found out that is related to the con one of the conditions I have now, but I'll explain that when I come to it. But again, I after having my second child, I felt very, very ill again. And we wondered if it might be the same thing, the vitamin D dropping and the iron dropping. And it had, but not to a ridiculous enough degree to have been causing me the problems I was having. And at this point, I was having really different symptoms. So I was having flashing lights, visual disturbances, bouncing lights, um, fatigue. I'd have these episodes where I felt like I was on a motor and that like the motor was, um, was dying basically. And I couldn't lift my arms up and I couldn't lift my head up. Um, when my husband bought me dinner, I would have to often not eat because trying to eat triggered breathlessness and I'd have to lie on the floor or do, um, like a yoga pose. I think it's like the child's pose or something like that, or downward dog or something like that. And, yeah, it was really a horrible time. And I and a lot of evenings overnight, my husband would be sleeping and I'd have to go into um, the spare bedroom and I'd have to do all these stretches and exercises to try and feel like to, to loosen my body because it felt like everything was compressing and I could not breathe. And I was just in, in a real state, to be honest with you. My heart would go really fast. I'd get really cold. I kept saying to them, I, you know, we, we've done my temperature and it's 34 and 35. And they said, no, that's impossible. You know, that's hypothermic levels. Um, you'd be dead, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, my blood pressure was just crazy. Sometimes it was so high I couldn't even stand up and I felt my head was going to explode. It was just a really, really horrible time. 
but I avoided going to the doctor because I thought, what's the point? They're never going to listen until at one point I was just in such a state I had to go. And yet again, instead of, oh, we've been wrong about this person before. Let's take her seriously this time. Let's help her. They didn't. Again, they disbelieved me. They dismissed me. And I just kept being told, when you have babies, it can take a while to heal and recover. But from what I've shared with you, you can understand why I didn't really have any trust in them at this stage. And, um, you know, again, I refused to go back to the doctor despite everything I was going through. But he actually suggested to me at one point when I'd had a breathless episode, I was reading to my children and I couldn't finish the book and I had to lie on the floor and try and get my breath back. And he said, that's anxiety. And even family members were saying, yeah, I think that he's right. I think you are anxious. I think the anxiety has now taken hold. And I was so frustrated because my husband was literally the only person in my life at the time who was seeing it and living it and believing it and not putting it down to anxiety. He could see that there was something, you know, really real going on with my body. And the doctor just kept saying, well, anxiety is a physical symptom. You know, if you're panicking about how your body's feeling, you know, of course you're going to be anxious. And I said, yeah, absolutely, but it's a secondary um, reaction. Whereas I think you're painting it as though I'm just suffering from anxiety and I need to understand how reading to my children can trigger anxiety. And he had no response for that. So months passed and I then got to a point where we reached um, Christmas at the end of this year. And by Christmas Day, I was so poorly. I spent most of Christmas Day in bed, feeling like my head was going to explode. And the following week, I had an eye test because we honestly thought there was something going on in my brain because I couldn't even see properly. properly. And I was getting like cloudy vision and black spots in my vision. And it was just really terrifying. The eye test came back with nothing. So yet again, you know, it looks like it's all in my head and it was absolutely awful. Um... And then the doctor said, I wonder if you're having migraines. And they put me on a medication for migraines called propranolol. And they put me on 80 milligrams of propranolol. And these symptoms I'd been having escalated to a new level, to the point that I wound up in hospital. Um, And it was a really, really scary time. And I just remember this one particular day feeling like my heart was going to explode. My blood pressure was so ridiculous and I had obviously two very small children at this time I'm trying to remember what ages they would have been at this point I think they were like one and three something like that and oh it was just so scary and I remember feeling like I'm going to faint I'm going to pass out and I managed to crawl to my front door open my front door call across to my neighbor and as she came running to my house I went and I woke up on the couch And um, I felt like something was pressing down on my neck and I was like, you know, and I couldn't breathe and I was being suffocated. And I was trying to um, pull everything away from my neck, thinking there was something on it, but apparently there wasn't. So, you know, any blankets or clothing, but I felt like there was somebody like pushing into my neck. And I, all I can remember is the people around me with their, um, their eyes looking so concerned. And it was just really awful. And my heart dropped, I think, to 44 blood pressure was wasn't very good um and then they called the doctors um like the hospital and they said you know bring her down and I actually said please don't take me to hospital because again my experience of with 
medical professionals where they never believed me anyway. And I just felt like they weren't really going to help. And I was actually scared of them. But um, things got so bad, I did wind up in hospital. And actually, the good thing about it was they then had to monitor me. And then they had to see for themselves that my temperature was indeed dropping to like 54. Uh, 34, sorry. Oh, crazy. Um, 34 and 35. And sometimes it was actually going under 34. It wasn't registering on the thermometer. Um, my My blood pressure was erratic. And... You know, the visual disturbances, everything, the dizziness, the um, fainting. I actually suffered more from presyncope, which is just before you faint, but it's the same kind of sensation. But luckily, like not lots of passing out, which is very dangerous. Um, but they got to see all of it. And it was kind of a blessing in disguise that the doctor had put me on the propanolol, uh, propanolol high dosage because um, a lower dosage apparently can actually be helpful, like at 10 milligram, but the 80 has been known to exacerbate symptoms for the condition that I later got diagnosed with. But it was at this stage that I started getting taken seriously. And then I got referred to a cardiologist who suffers with the same condition I've been diagnosed with. And she recognised it straight away, did some tests. And then I was diagnosed with MCAS, so mast cell activation syndrome, dysautonomia, which is basically the failure or dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, um, HEDS, so hypermobility anus danlos syndrome, and that explained the pelvic girdle pain that I had in pregnancy. So if we'd known about that before, we'd have understood what that was, and I could have maybe been given crutches or something to get around. Um, and POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And um, all of these things are very commonly diagnosed together. And then the joyous part of this is that what comes along with a lot of these conditions are other things like interstitial cystitis. So that's when you feel like you're having bladder infections, but you're actually not. It kind of mimics it. Um, and a whole host of other things. And, you know, pain and oh, it's just not nice. All of these conditions are horrid. I was having a really horrible time and it took years to actually be listened to. I had two small children and nobody listened to me. Nobody took me seriously. After being diagnosed, I thought, right, this is the end of the med medical gaslighting. They now know that when I say I'm feeling something or something's happening, they know they have to trust me because I've been right again. Um, but then recently, so last year, and I'm not an anti-vaxxer, I've had my vaccinations, but I am going to share with you my experience of being vaccinated. So I had the Pfizer jab three times. My first Pfizer vaccination, I, you know, had aching and that kind of thing, but um, it wasn't, you know, it was, I tolerated it. The second jab, I was so poorly afterwards. And people say, well, it's normal for your body to react, but it was so bad and nobody would believe me uh, again. And I ended up in hospital and... I now have permanent glands up in my collarbone uh, from the second jab. But everything swelled so badly I couldn't move my neck and I was bedridden. And that's not easy with children like mine because there aren't many other people who can help me with them. So that was a really awful time. But nobody believed me. And when I tried to speak to doctors, it's like, it's like they had to be hush-hush about the possibility of there being any side effects from these vaccines. Now, I've been told since it's probably where I have a poor immune system and I've already got other conditions and my system has probably gone into overdrive. But it is so upsetting that I had to go through again all this pain and then they just told me it was all in my head and 
I was experiencing what everybody else was when I could clearly see that wasn't the case. And then it came round to the booster and I was terrified of having the booster because of the way I'd reacted to the second one. And I was told, no, it's absolutely fine. And then I reacted really badly to the booster to the point that I now have other glands up in my body that are not that have not gone down. Um, so, you know, um, if we put it into perspective, we are now in March 2022. I had my second jab, I believe, in May 21. And I had my booster at the very end of November or beginning of December 2021. And here I am in March 22, and I still have all these problems going on. And I feel like other things have been triggered in my immune system, and I feel like things are deteriorating. So I won't go into great detail about what those things are at the moment, because we are still having to investigate them. But this is where further medical gaslighting comes in for me. So I go to the doctors, again, through being nagged by family, it's made it sound like I spend my life at the doctors as an adult, and actually I've spent most of my life avoiding it. But when I get nagged um, by my very lovely family, I do go. But at one point, there was an option to email the doctors, and I much preferred that. I felt it was easier for me to communicate what I was experiencing. And I do get told off sometimes for going into great vivid detail, but it's because I really want to be clear on what I'm experiencing. But I'm told that saying this hurts is enough. But I like to kind of ex- explain in more vivid detail, like what that feels like, because to me, again, I feel like that helps, but it just sadly means they flag you up as being a bit more of a hypochondriac. And I think for me, why I'm so passionate, excuse me, about especially us neurodivergent people who do go through these cycles and who are going to probably either struggle to describe it and struggle to describe pain levels or maybe be a little bit more complex and over describe things I think that there needs to be that tolerance and understanding there and that's not there but um you know I described all the things from the booster I got completely dismissed about that uh the doctor again yes normal for glands to come up I said are they supposed to stay up permanently Mm, well no but I'm sure they'll go down well they haven't they're still there and we're having to monitor them for the size because we have to make sure they don't get any bigger. And like I said, I've developed some other issues. And I've been to the doctor recently because I am literally in so much pain with one of the things that's developed. And it might not even be related to the vaccine, but it just seems a bit coincidental that this thing has happened since. But I'm really struggling at the moment in everyday life to kind of move and do anything. I'm in a lot of pain. And um, they just aren't helping at all. It's like they just don't care. And yet again, you can't go and say you've done any research or it might be this or because as soon as you do, they just flag you as being a hypochondriac. And I don't know, I just find the whole thing really, really difficult. I think so many of us have been through this where we've had bad experiences with doctors and then we become anxious. And then the irony is they then label you as anxious. Like you've just for no reason, you're just anxious going to the doctors and they say, oh, you've got white coat syndrome and essentially you're you know when I go there my blood pressure will be higher than usual and they'll be like oh that's strange well not really you know because by the time I've made that appointment and scripted what I have to say I mean having to speak to somebody and get past that kind of barrier is hard anyway then wait to be spoken to by a doctor so they can decide whether or not you're worthy of an appointment and then waiting and then you know getting to the surgery and then waiting for the appointment oh my word I hate it I I think 
my ADHD comes out the most when I'm in waiting rooms. I'm an absolute nightmare. I can see that I'm annoying everybody else because I can't keep still. My feet, I'm tapping on the anti-back thing in my hands. You know, best thing to do is take your phone with you so you've got something to play with. But I made a foolish mistake last time and left it in the car with my husband and my children who he had to drag out to get me there because I can't drive because of my condition anymore. And, um, oh, it's just crazy. And, um, yeah, it was just awful. And what they don't get is you've gone through all of that. And to some people, that's nothing. But to most of us, it's really hard. And then by the time you've got into the appointment, you've then, you're so heightened. And then you've got to try and speak to them and describe things to them and follow instructions. And they look at you like you're crazy. And I've got anxiety in the past um, flagged up on my um, notes. I don't think I have at my new surgery, but at my old one I did. And I remember going to an appointment and this gentleman was so lovely and patient with me. And um, again, it was after my second child when I couldn't breathe and all that kind of thing. And he was so lovely until he looked at my notes and then his whole face and demeanour changed and my husband was with me. And he said, look, I'll do a couple of tests, but I'm pretty confident they'll come back with nothing. He's just so smug. And, um, and then I later found out from my other doctor, because you had like one doctor, but they could send you to anybody depending on how busy it was, that I had been flagged up as being anxious. And it took me a while to get the courage, but I actually asked him in the end, why have you flagged me up as being anxious? And to me, I felt this was creating a barrier to care because they weren't taking anything I said seriously. And this, then it, it's like the light bulb moment. This is why every time I come here, no one listens to me. They think I'm just coming in here for the sake of it. You know, I'm a hypochondriac and I'm anxious. And even if I was, like, doesn't that still signify that that person needs help on some level? So, you know, I get that it's hard for them, but I don't know. I just think that the compassion sometimes isn't there. It's very frustrating um, and he said to me, the reason you've been flagged up as anxious is because you always come in with a long list of ailments. I was like, okay, fair enough, because I save them up, um, because I avoid coming. And so I only come when I get to the point where I really have to. But also I do describe them in great detail because I want you to try and understand what I'm going through. He said, you don't make eye contact because my eye contact is erratic when I'm uncomfortable. I was like, okay. He said, and also because you talk really fast. I said, do you realise all those things are actually um, common in autism and I am autistic? And he didn't know that. And I'm not saying that they have to know everything. Like, again, of course he's not going to know everything about autism or everything about every condition. But it's just a shame to me that their go-to is always something really negative. It's always, you're anxious, you're a hypochondriac, I'm not going to listen to you. Like, how many other people have they let down? And how many years of my life have been wasted through not being listened to and not getting the adequate treatment that I deserve. And I've got small children who are very challenging and need so much from me. And, you know, the only thing that I want is health so that I can really, you know, properly support them. And it's the one thing I don't have and it's so frustrating. And then when you do reach out to people for help, people who have the actual ability to help you, they aren't interested and again, I do understand that they are so overworked and I don't want to take away from that understanding. But, you know, so many of us have this experience where they don't listen and, and autism needs to be on the radar. In fact, not just autism, neurodivergence, because, you know, ADHD is so closely linked and all of the different comorbid conditions, you know, they all create very similar um, difficulties, I suppose. 
And I know that there are some autistic people who will be able to go to the doctors without any issue. But I do know for such a lot of us, you know, there is a barrier and that we'll avoid going because of all the issues I've already talked about. But what I can't understand and what I will never, what I will never get my head around is why they can't just treat you with the compassion to start with. Like, you know, I want them to have autism on their radar and I know that there will be some mandatory training coming in this year through the National Autism Strategy and hopefully people will start to have a greater awareness and understanding of what it is to be autistic and how to identify and support autistic patients. But in my case, I don't present as obviously autistic. And so that was never going to be on something that they were going to think of for me. And there will be so many other autistic patients going in who are not getting the care they need and deserve. And also, and also so many autistic patients going in there struggling with all the things I've described and having the experiences I've described. And they don't even know they're autistic. And so what I always say across the board for education and in life about if we have default approaches that are kind of send friendly, that will actually benefit all. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there. I'm not sure if I've completely covered the topic adequately, but I do know so many of us have these experiences and I am so passionate really about trying to get GPs and doctors to understand where we're coming from and to understand like how traumatic going to a doctor is and why we sometimes might present the way we do. And don't dismiss us as just being anxious. Try and look a bit deeper. I know it's hard because of the things they have to juggle and it's not an easy line of work for them. But it's not easy for us. Think about our context too. Anyway, thanks for listening and I'll speak soon.